to Luke chapter 7. These are old and very familiar stories, but uh, as I have shared with you before, I have uh, my real interest in teaching these is that I can not just to retell the story and the, and the messages that have come, but uh, the, uh, a depth or an understanding that maybe hasn't been here before. This begins in verse 36. And I, I pray that there's something in this, in this teaching tonight that the Holy Spirit is just bearing witness with me right now that's going to hit somebody's heart very squarely that it's fixing to get someone's attention, and I don't know who it is. Uh, it, it, it can't be Cody because God can barely see him because he's wearing camouflage tonight. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew somebody walked by me earlier, but I wasn't sure who it was because I could just barely see him. Beginning with verse 36. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he sat down to meet. So we're, we know we're speaking of Jesus here, that the Pharisee wanted to have lunch or dinner with Jesus. He invited him to come to his house. And so Jesus uh, gladly went. And behold, a woman of the city, which was a sinner, and when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And I want to stop there for just a second. Because already in this story, there are so many things that just begin to shout of a, of, of a reality to us. Because when it says that this woman was a sinner, if you actually read what it's talking about and the, and the way that the Pharisee eventually refers to her, we know that this woman was not only a sinner, but it was in a particular area that this woman uh, was, was very, very likely a prostitute. That that's the way she had made her living. That's the way she had survived. That, that, was, what she had, that was her life. And, and it's, it's very clear that the Pharisee, when he asked Jesus to come to dinner, he, he had absolutely no desire to learn what Jesus wanted to share. He had no desire to welcome Jesus and just learn from him and receive from him what Jesus could give. He was there, invited to his home, so that he could find information out. He could discover things about Jesus that would allow him to accuse him and eventually the outcome to, to have him condemned and killed. So we understand that the Pharisee's heart wasn't pure. We're going to see that very quickly. We understand that this woman was, was kind of extreme in her sin. And how amazing it was that somehow she found the courage to come into the Pharisee's home knowing the scorn, knowing the embarrassment, knowing the shame, knowing the potential that she could be thrown out of there as soon as she walked in. She had to overcome great fear, great uncertainty, huge questions to be able to walk into that Pharisee's home. And the question is, what in the world would compel her? 
Because we're, we're going to get into the story and realize that this woman, at this point, was not saved. Her sins had not been forgiven. But something had already started working in her to, to, to compel her that this is, I don't care what anybody says about me. I don't care what anybody does to me. I have to, I have to get into the presence of Jesus. Now, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to put a piece of the story in the story that's not here. And I know there's always a risk to this. But I think I'm standing on pretty solid ground when I can say that this woman had heard something about Jesus, had received a testimony from someone else about this man named Jesus that would so compel her heart that she too could, if I can just get to Jesus, my life would be different. I believe someone told her, someone shared something, or she saw something that would, that would take her from a hopeless position and by the power of testimony, by the power of someone's witness, could let hope begin to rise in her. And I want to tell you, we live in a world where by our testimonies, and I'm not talking about the words that we speak necessarily, I'm talking about, about the world recognizing that within us there is something so uniquely different that it creates hope in them, that a testimony begins to rise. And you've heard me say it before, and it's not original to me, you know, that, that as Christians we're supposed to, to, to teach and, and preach often, and if necessary, use words. It's not the words that compel them. It's the life. Now, I want to tell you, this is, this is a hard commentary on the church. But most of the time when the world looks at us, they see nothing different. They, they may see somebody who lives a good life. They may see somebody who drives a nice car. They may see somebody who seems like they've got their life together. But the uniqueness of what would compel this woman to go against all those odds had to be something better than I'm going to go meet a, uh, I'm going to go meet a nice guy. I'm going to go meet a guy who's friendly. I'm going to go meet a guy who, who's pretty encouraging. Whatever the testimony was that brought her to Jesus was because she knew that there was a supernatural reality about Jesus that she could find in no one else. I'm sure this woman knew good people. I'm sure this woman knew people who went to church. I'm sure this woman knew people who were, who were generous or who or maybe were kind. Maybe someone had been kind to her. I don't know the pieces of that story. But I can tell you this, whatever compelled her to come to Jesus wasn't because he was kind, it was because he was supernatural. He had, there was a supernatural reality about him that would draw her. And I want to tell you, the, ch the church is in the mess today because there is no supernatural reality about us that would draw a world so that when they look at us, they just see another version of them. And often, a religious one, or a hypocritical one, or an arrogant one, and they hold up their hands and say, if that's what church is like, I don't want anything to do with it. Because they see in churches the same bickering, they see in churches the same indifference, they see in, in church the same selfishness, as they see everywhere else in the world. Somehow, through some testimony, through some witness, this woman knew, if I can get to Jesus, there's a supernatural reality that is possible. 
I want to tell you, as we're sitting here as believers today, ask ourselves this question about us. Is there a supernatural reality about me? If someone examined my life, would there be things that they would write down that say there's no explanation for this outside of the power of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit? Or would your life read like anyone else's? You know, in Hebrews, the scripture about us, about believers, you know, they had a form of godliness, but they knew not the power. I want to tell you, that is the chronic testimony of religion today. We have this strange form of godliness that, that, that the world doesn't seem to want. Because we lack the power thereof. And we've asked this question over the last few weeks. How in the world? How in the world can we testify of a God who is supernatural? And we read of the supernatural realities. We're fixing to read of these supernatural moments. How can a God who is powerfully supernatural and who loves us passionately and loves giving gifts to his children and tends to us and cares for us the way that a father tends to a child, how can we say that that's who we are and then, and then continue in bitterness or anger or resentment or addictions or struggles or lies or deception over not just days but years and years and decades and longer than that? How can those two things coexist? And we've talked a great deal about, about Satan's deceit and how he can actually, as an inferior being, have such a drastic effect on someone who was designed by God to be superior. Not by ourselves, but by the fact that the Holy Spirit can live in us, that we take on this position where, where Satan can't reach us unless we give him permission. He has no authority, but he has power. Well, this woman saw something. In Jesus. And if I were to ask you, as I've done this before, probably should have done it tonight. Several years ago on a Sunday night, I had everybody take a little piece of paper. And I gave this instruction. As I read this story, and I read the story of Lazarus and his death and, and Jesus standing before the tomb. And I ask you, as I read the story, I want you to write down the character that you, are, that, you are, that you associate with the most. And so I, I read the, the entire account of Lazarus and Jesus at the tomb and calling Lazarus forth. And there were about 40 here, that, that 40 or 50 here that Sunday night. And I got all the, the papers back and I had Mike look at them. And he brought me a tally sheet of everybody's answer. And the, and the res I found the response pretty remarkable because there were some Marthas, there were some Marys, there were a few who said, we, I, I'm more associated with the mourners. But there was one answer that was completely missing. No one associated himself with Jesus. No one said, I'm, I associate myself and I, and I can see myself as Jesus in that story. I'd ask you the same thing tonight. 
Who do you associate yourself with? Do you associate yourself and say, I'm Jesus in that story because of the supernatural reality of what the Holy Spirit does in me and through me that, that anyone would be drawn to that supernatural possibility? Are you Jesus in the story? Some of us would see ourselves as the woman who's coming broken, and there's nothing wrong with that because some have, have that broken heart. But I, I, I pray that if they have a broken heart, they have somebody around them that they can see who bears that witness of a supernatural reality that they would be drawn to the possibility that maybe the hopelessness I feel, it would give way to the hope that I see in somebody else by a testimony. Something got her there. Something made her willing to, to brave what she could possibly receive. And I'll and I tell you what the saddest thing is. For many people, walking into the back doors of a church, or the front doors of a church, I guess I should say, is equally as hard as, as this woman walking into the Pharisee's house. That's shocking. That's shocking that anyone would be bothered to come into any church anywhere. But I've walked into a few. And I knew, I knew pretty quickly I was out of place. I, I, didn't, I didn't fit and I didn't belong. And again, my prayer, from, from, especially from last March and last April when we asked this church at one time to cut off the judgment switch so that it would never come back on. And the church stood together in unison and said, the switch is, the switch is off, that no one feels judged. They walk in here, they'll know that they've walked into people just like them and, 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 some, and, and that they're loved. It's just a sad, it's just, it is, to me at least, sad that how many times I hear that, some, that someone say, I, I just wouldn't be welcome there. I've heard it about this church, I haven't heard it lately, but I've heard it most of my life about Sundown First Baptist Church. That I'd go, but I know I'm, I don't have the clothes to wear, I know I wouldn't be welcome. Well, they need to, I, I encourage them to try again, to come again, and, uh, and see if it's, it's the same. Let's go a little further in the story. Verse 38, and again, as she stood at his feet, behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. I want to tell you, this was a passionate moment. This wasn't, this wasn't gentle kissing. You study what this said, this woman was, was full out embracing, kissing Jesus' feet. And it's so amazing that uh, it says, the words actually, when it says she began to wash, it says to wash with a shower. That's how fully and completely this was coming. She came to his feet because that, in that day they were reclining. They were, they were, on, they were leaning on their left arm on some short, top of a bench, their feet pointing away from the table, and they would eat with their right hand. So it was no great surprise that she could approach Jesus' feet uh, from behind him. And that's, that's where this occurred. Now when the Pharisee, the one who had invited him, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And it's, just, it's that word 
that, take, that tells us that she was a prostitute. And you can see immediately this Pharisee has one desire, and that's to discredit Jesus. I tell you, it, it, is, it is amazing to read within the Christian church how badly pastors feel the necessity to discredit another pastor. Happens a lot. It truly happens a lot. And I, I, it's, it, it, it's absolutely strange. And Jesus answering. Now it says he said this within himself, but Jesus heard it. It's kind of strange, isn't it, that this man is trying, is trying to say about Jesus, you don't, you don't know her story, and what's Jesus fixing to do? He's saying, I not only know her story, Simon, the Pharisee, I know your story. Because that's what he's fixing to tell him. Because it doesn't say that this man says this out loud. It says, he says it within himself. But Jesus heard him say it within himself. And Jesus answering said unto Simon, I have something what to say unto you. He said, Master, say on. So Jesus did as he often does when he doesn't want to be hurtful. He goes into a parable and begins to give this illustration. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. When they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? And Simon didn't have to think long because that's not a hard question. It's not a real hard answer. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. So he's, Jesus has set him up with this parable so that, so that he would have to face a truth and Jesus would never have to tell him, you're a hypocrite. Jesus would never have to point out his flaw. And you know, you've, I, I want to beat this illustration to death before I get through with it, but, uh, you know, if I went out in the backyard and I built a brick wall, and I did the best I could, and I, you know, four feet high and ten feet long, and it's, I look, I step back and it's like, wow, that's pretty good. And so I invite this bricklayer friend of mine over who does it all the time, and he, he, I, I take him out in the backyard, and I'm expecting him to say, my goodness, that is impressive. He walks around and says, yeah, that's not bad. And I start getting upset. You know, what do you mean it's not bad? He said, well, you know, it's, it's okay. You did good. And I'm getting more upset because what I expected him to come out there and say, he didn't say. And he says, you know, do you, well, do, do you have a string and a weight that I can tie on the bottom of it? I said, yeah. So I go off and get the string and get a weight. And he doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to say anything about the quality of my wall. He doesn't have to pick it apart. He doesn't have to say this brick is crooked or it, it, it's not level on the top or it's leaning over. He doesn't have to do any of that. He holds the string up there. And what happens? He holds that string up there that's now coming down level. And he holds it up against my wall. And all of a sudden I realize, ooh. It's not exactly what I thought it was. One of, the, one of the powerful realities of Christianity is we have been a long time meddling and telling people what's wrong with their wall. Telling them what's wrong with you. And God says, please don't do that. Hold a string of truth up against it and let them see for themselves. 
much more powerful. I don't offend. I don't accuse. I don't hurt. I, I, don't, I, don't, have to, I don't have to say anything. I don't have to judge. Just hold the truth up against it. When, when, you know, when people come in my office, I, you know, especially when, when they, they come in and say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not, I don't ask them to tell me their story. They can if they want to, and there's pieces of it that, that we will finally get to. But I don't ask them to retell their story. I said, well, you know, all I can do is hold the truth up against it and let you see. I'll hold the truth up against it, and then I'll ask them, is that what happened to you when you were saved? And very often they'll say, nothing like that happened to me when I was saved. I didn't have to get them to retell their story. I had to hold up the truth up against it. What's, what's Jesus doing here for, for the Pharisee? He's just holding the string up. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't say much to him. He doesn't, he doesn't say you're awful or you're mean or you're keep your mouth shut or anything else. He doesn't say anything to him regarding how he's treating this woman. He just holds the truth up against it. Jesus has no desire, I don't believe, at this point, I don't think he has any desire to offend his host. Now, it's going to be very hard when Jesus holds the truth up there for the guy who's going to process this for the Pharisee. But at this point, Jesus is just saying, I'm going to hold this up. And, and so he's just he's, he's holding it up so the guy has to make the comparison. Verse 44, and he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into your house, and you gave me no water for my feet but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss when I came in, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves very little. So even though Jesus has started in this parable saying that the debt for both was forgiven, one a lot and one a little, Jesus is drawing this down to a, a very different question now. There's something else that's powerfully working in what Jesus is doing in these questions because he has already said by Simon's confession, who would be the most grateful? Who would, who would be the most demonstrative because they had been forgiven a lot? And the, and, the, and the question Simon answers very easily, it's the one who was forgiven much. So Jesus isn't hesitant to say, you know, by her, by her love response, by the way she has loved me, by what she has done for me, what she has done to me, you can tell that this woman has been forgiven much. So there's no denying in Simon that, that, that God has forgiven this woman an unbelievable amount. But then he turns this question back to Simon when he, when he goes through this illustration and says, and says, Simon, how much love did you show me when you offered me no water for my feet? How much love was there in that? Zero. How much, how much love was there uh, when you gave me no kiss? Zero. 
How much love was there when you, anoint, when you failed to anoint my head? As was just simply customary. No extravagance, just simple courtesy that would have been done in that day. And he's asking Simon, how much love are you demonstrating? Zero. How much love is there in, in you calling me here, trying to trick me and deceive me so that you can accuse me? Zero. What's he saying? Okay, we, we can make it simple. If, 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 if the forgiveness for 500 equals a 500 degree love response, 500 equals 500, 500 sins forgiven, 500 demonstrations of love. I'm just trying to make, put an equal sign between the two. If I drop down here and say, zero love, how much forgiveness has there been, Simon? Zero. Jesus turned that corner on Simon, and Simon suddenly got addressed with the reality that even in a situation where there was a little bit of forgiveness, there would be a little bit of a love response. And Simon, there has been no love response from you whatsoever. Now, Jesus didn't say, because you love me, that's why your sins are forgiven, because he says your sins are forgiven, and he says, because of that, there's a love response, for this is why you did it. Loving God does, is not what gives us forgiveness. It's trusting and putting our faith and our belief in him. But Jesus says, the minute that you, that you realize what I have done for you, there will be a love relationship. Now, don't take this lightly. Don't take this lightly. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, makes this point very clear. Narrow is the gate. What goes over here? Straight is the way. What goes between those two? And. The conjunction, and. Narrow is the gate. And straight is the way that leads to salvation. It doesn't say that narrow is the gate and then you get to go out here and live any way you want. The same Holy Spirit that brought the conviction that you needed to be saved and asked Jesus to be your Savior, that ho the same Holy Spirit will continue to work in you, asking and drawing you to the Holy Spirit who will do the same thing. That, that, the, that the salvation that you came through, the gate that you came to, and the life that you live after were designed to be a match. If it took love to save you, then you'll understand it's the love relationship that comes after. It ought to be a wake-up call for many if they, if they, if they realize, I, I say I'm saved, but I have chosen to live in a way that there's no evidence of it whatsoever. And I'm not going to say, and I'll, and I'll just use Melissa's testimony if she doesn't mind. You know, Melissa has told me from the time that she was saved when she was, when she was young, she said there was no low spot. There was no moment when she, when, when she was in, in, you know, in the things that, that were in, she was engaged in. There was never a moment when she didn't know that the Holy Spirit was there holding her, taking care of her, bringing her back and restoring her. And she said there was never a moment when I didn't know that that was true. I'm not going to say that, that out here in this life that we're not going to get off that path, but we will, by the same work of the Holy Spirit, always be being, being brought back, being brought back, being loved back. He loves us enough to save us. He loved us enough to bring us back. I feel like he never gave up on me because I was way off of the path. Way, way off of the path. Yeah. 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 
you know, if, if you didn't hear, you know, she said she was way, way off the path, close to death at times. But she said even though, you know, even that, though that was true, he never gave up. He was constantly, in, a, in the example I use, if you're on this narrow path and there's a child walking in front of you and 10 feet over here to the side, there's a cliff. If that child moves off that path, you gently pat them back on. But you would never let them venture off that path if you love them and let them stay off the path. And if they, the closer they get to the edge, the, more, the louder you get and the more urgent your voice. And if they get very far off, you're going to reach out and get them and you're going to put them back on the path. If they get so close to the edge that they're about to go off the edge, then the return becomes very violent. That's what happened in that April. It was a very violent move of God to, to, to bring restoration and healing. And it sits here in front of us in just absolute beauty. That's what God does. But he never gave up, and they never, you know, the, that testimony. is It doesn't matter how far you off, that Holy Spirit, when you're saved, that Holy Spirit will, that saved you, rescued you one time to, to move you from a sinner to a saint, will never leave you alone off of that path. The scary part is thinking of what we're on a journey of violation. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, you know, that's, yeah. That's what my heart breaks for people that are there because, you know. Yeah. Because they, they, they don't have that voice. They don't have that calling, and they're out there alone. Yeah. And even though I, I'm in the same spot, you feel, I don't know, it's just so much different now, but I just know that there was something there with me. Yeah. You know? And but for those that don't know that and haven't been saved, that's just scary. It's got to be awful. You know? Yeah. Well, it, it's, such a, it's such a powerful testimony to just, you know, you, your laughter is, is, that, is that supernatural reality. Now, you may not ever move it in that category, but, but hearing you laugh is a supernatural draw of God. It has to be. Yeah. <laughs> right it, the, the fact that you know his statement i'll never leave you i'll never forsake you is an absolute 100 percent true statement i mean rem remarkable yeah i mean I, I can see a lot of testimonies i see just you know just one after the other of that transforming power of what god does jay Right. 
Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That that we we can say in that in that situation in all situations that God is not disappointed. Not in him. You have something? It sure is. Yeah. That's right. Let me let me get to the end of this story. Got a little more to share. Verse forty-eight. He says. He said unto her, "Thy sins are forgiven." It's no small statement. Uh, this came through Kate, uh, this statement, and, and I think this lady's name is Christine Kane, that I'm, that I'm going to be quoting. If I'm wrong, I'll fix it some other time. But she's, she's talking about what we face here every day. The children of, e- the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And by one move of God, one powerful move of God, he took his children out of Egypt. But he could not take Egypt out of his children. We can pick people up and bring them out of their turmoil, out of their, out of their difficulty, out of their pain, out of their grief. We can remove them out of the situation. But it is a far different story. We can remove them from the brokenness, but to, to remove the brokenness from them is a whole different story. We can take them out of the situation where somebody says you're worthless, but taking worthless out of, out of them is a whole different story. That is only possible, like in this moment, because this man said, this Savior said, your sins are forgiven. They're not coming back. You will never be in a moment again when your sin is not forgiven. 
He picked her up, removed her out of her sin, put, that, put her outside of that, said your sins are forgiven. Now how tragic it would be if that woman, having heard that, would not let her, the sin, the condemnation, get outside of her. And sadly, that's where most people live. Free, but still under the bondage because they haven't ridded themselves of what's happened inside. This woman hears these words, and they that said it meet with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sin also? They were so stunned. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now, please, please, please don't miss these last words. Because I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about what's the difference between those things that happen within God's design and those things that aren't. That we're asking the wrong questions. We keep debating right or wrong and good and bad. And as Christians, it's driving, it's driving the world crazy because we can't come to agreement within ourselves what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong. And I shared with you two weeks ago, that's the wrong question. Because there's too many shades of gray in those answers. The question is, is it in God's design or is it not in God's design? That I can, that I can come to a pretty un, a clear understanding. And the one that I, I ended that conversation with was grace. What grace does inside of God's design and what grace does outside of God's design are two very, very different things. Grace inside of God's design always releases us to live under that design and in that purpose and according to that power and receiving that love. That, that will always be the outcome of God's grace inside his design. So when he says to her, go in peace, he's saying, I'm releasing you to go live in God's design. Just as he said to the woman caught in adultery. When he says, I don't condemn you either, if he had stopped right there, he would have shown her grace outside of God's design that says, I can go back and sin and do the same things, and it's covered by God's grace. Because grace outside of God's design gives us permission to sin. But he didn't stop there when he says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Go and live in that design. Go and live as God had intended and receive the blessings of what that means, the favor to be within the design of God. The grace that we have offered around the world has been so cheap, it simply almost says you can do anything you want and God loves you and you live under his favor. Well, God does love you. But if you choose to live outside of his design, he cannot release the blessings to you that he can within his design. If he did, it would make his design worthless. And I shared with you any church, any teaching that does not put Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit squarely in the center of our teaching and of our life is outside of, the, outside of the design of God because God's design will always teach every single time without exception that by His design He so created us that we could hold the power in the presence of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus did. And anybody who teaches any, any other story other than that is teaching religion without, without the Holy Spirit. That's not God's design. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. That grace, that love, that kindness says, I now release you to go in peace. Live by my 
design. Because if you step back out here and do the same things that you did, and we've had this encounter, there will be no peace. Because my grace was released to you so that you could find your purpose, live by my design, receive the blessings of it, live in the goodness of it, receive the healing of it, and live under that favor. Grace outside of that design just gives us permission to sin. And that, sadly, is the grace that the church has been offering. Not the grace that allows us to live in authority. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could come together and just study this word tonight. such a powerful word. And I just thank you, Lord, that you could unfold it before us. And I pray, Lord, that, the, that each of us, with open hearts and ready spirits, have received the relevant truth to each one of us tonight, as you spoke it, in Jesus' name. Amen.